You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hi, I'm Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. If you've been listening to me for any length of time, particularly recently, you know that I am a big believer that health and finances are in bed together, not for just now, but for the rest of what is likely to be a very, very long life. And that's why I'm so delighted that as she launches her book, we have Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, a former physician, editor-in-chief of Kaiser Health News, here in the studio to talk about an American sickness. That's the title of what is going to be a blockbuster, how healthcare became big business, and how you can take it back. And before Kaiser, she was a healthcare reporter, a much awarded healthcare reporter for the New York Times. Elizabeth, thanks for being here and making us a stop on your tour. Oh, thanks for having me and thanks for that great introduction. Oh, you are you are very very welcome. I mean, it really it takes a stay of one night in the hospital or one medical expense to push many families in this country to the brink. I mean, I've been reporting on personal finance for going on 30 years. And every single year, when you look at the leading cause of bankruptcy in America, it is always health care. So give us the lay of the land. Where are we right now? Because you read the, the newspapers, you read the headlines. What is the state of health care today? Well, in terms of the financial issues, we're on a continually upward spiral in terms of costs. And we've all seen rising premiums, rising co-pays, rising deductibles. And it's really not sustainable. I mean, we are asking way too much of patients. I hear from many families for whom health care costs, insurance, and minor medical problems are 20, 30 percent of their household budget. That's more than their mortgage, more than food. I mean, we really can't put people in this position long term. And people feel helpless. I mean, you get you open these bills and you see these numbers, you know, uh, your surgery costs $80,000. And we've negotiated it down to $50,000 on behalf of your insurer. And you're expected to pay $5,000. And all of it's kind of overwhelming. The prices, even the out-of-pocket costs have gotten hugely burdensome. I mean, $5,000 deductibles used to be unheard of. Now they're pretty common. And that means, you know, not going on a summer vacation, maybe not going to visit your parents. I mean, the trade-offs are huge and I think unreasonable at this point. You've been covering this for a very, very long time. How long were Too you? Long. <laughs> no, definitely not. There's something to having perspective, I say, as a 30-year veteran myself. But how long were you on this beat at the Times before moving to Kaiser? Well, I say too long, not because it feels too long for me, but 
I really expected there to be a solution by now that wasn't just we're going to continue on this inflationary spiral. I mean, ironically, I started covering this at the Times in the 1990s when there was the Clinton health reform going on, and I was practicing as a doctor then. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the Times and I'll cover this for a few years, and it will be solved, and then I'll go back to being a doctor. And of course, here we are 20 years later with things worse, not better. Why then write the book right now? I mean, what was the tipping point that made you say, I got to just put it all out there? Well, I think personally, I wanted to understand. I've been a foreign correspondent for about 10 years from 1997 to 2007. And when I left, the system was still working by and large for people like me, people who had good insurance um, I was working in an emergency room, so I saw the people it wasn't working for. But if you were reasonably well off and insured, you were okay. When I got back in 2007, I was shocked. I mean, I went to fill a prescription for an inhaler, which I'd bought overseas, and I'd bought before I'd left for $10, and suddenly it was $100. And I'm thinking, I go to the pharmacist, you know, wait, I have good insurance. And he's like, right, that's the cost now. And it didn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, maybe this is not something people speak about normally, but we should. You know, I had a, I was turned 50. I needed a screening colonoscopy, sure. right? And so um, I wanted to get it in network because I knew that healthcare costs had been spiraling upwards. So I signed up at an in-network hospital and, you know, I was really kind of worried because I, I, I had trained partly at that hospital. I was having an OR bonnet on, some booties, a gown. I was wheeled into this place that I knew was an operating room. There were, you know, anesthesiologists, nurses. And I was thinking, wow, this looks like it's going to be pretty expensive. And, of course, I got my shot of propofol and uh, all was well. My colon was great. But a month later, I got a an explanation of benefits showing me that my colonoscopy had been billed at $11,000. And I should have been happy because I didn't have to pay anything, but I was pissed. I thought, you know, a country that's paying $10,000, $11,000 for ordinary procedures is going to end up with exactly what we see today, you know, deductibles, co-pays going through the roof and people not able to afford it. So I went back to healthcare reporting, said, this is the only thing I want to cover, healthcare costs, did that with a series called Pain Till It Hurts for two years. I got so many comments and stories in response to that series that I just felt like I have to write a book. I have to put this together for everyone. I have to tell these stories because these were people who didn't have a voice, who were suffering under the burden of the cost. They were mostly happy with their health care, but they couldn't afford it anymore. And so I thought, I'm going to put this together into a book. I want people to understand that they don't have to be paying this much and to give them some guidance about where to start, what you can do, because there are things you can do. I think we feel helpless, but we don't have to feel that helpless. Right. And you organize the book into two parts. And one, right. the second part is designed to take away that feeling of helplessness. The first, though, covers how the industry went from being a caring profession, a helping profession, to the most profitable industry in the United States. Right. What went wrong? Well, and it happened in a very short period of time. That's the shocking thing in just a few decades. Well, I think what happened is you saw sector by sector, and that's why the book is organized this way, 
the infusion, the slow infusion of business logic into healthcare. When I was a resident in a, a hospital in New York, you know, there was a head nurse and she didn't know about the finances. She didn't care about the finances. She just wanted to do the right things for those patients. But what I saw even then was suddenly there would be managers coming in and people with clipboards and MBAs and saying, gee, you know, this isn't a profitable service or gee, if you just build it this way instead of that way, we could make more money. And that led over time after I'd left medicine to consultants from places like Deloitte coming in and saying, you know what, if you build that emergency room visit under these codes instead of those codes, you could triple your income. The healthcare wasn't any different, but the billing was. And so in sector by sector, you see the values of business kind of uh, make an incursion into healthcare so that what do we value in healthcare in the business of healthcare today it's efficiency it's revenue generation it's return on investment those aren't healthcare values they're just not and sometimes they overlap with healthcare values but often they're contrary and that's why i think we see both patients and physicians so uncomfortable with the kind of system we have today. And, and so confused. I mean, I had a colonoscopy when I turned 50, and it pissed me off as well, not because I was not healthy, but because when I got the bill back for mine, there was a separate charge for the doctor and right. a separate charge for the facility and a separate charge for the anesthesiologist because I'd gone into, you know, a place, a, a hospital to have one. And it would have... My husband had his by the same doctor at the same time, and his bill was lower because he had it in the doctor's other office. Right. And it was infuriating. Right. And that's the kind of thing that I think people should understand. You know, your doctor will say to you, do you want to schedule this test on a Tuesday or a Thursday? And it sounds like an even proposition to you, but you have to know and you have to ask, um, Okay, on Tuesday you're in an office. On Thursday you're in your hosp in the hospital, and that hospital procedure will cost two, three times as much just because of the location, and it will be absolutely the same for you. So, if you're thinking as a business person trying to maximize revenue, that may make sense. If you're thinking as a patient, that's a waste of your money. And if you're thinking as a consumer, which we have to think now, you know, you're going to be facing outpatient deductibles and co-payments that are, you know, many times more because of that decision that seemed not important to you. So I think my first piece of advice to people is you have to get wise to how the system works. And then you have to ask questions, which is a really different role for patients. You know, we're not used to being in that kind of, hey, doctor, why are you ordering that test? Hey, doctor, I know you sent a requisition to this lab, but that lab's not in my network. Please order it from this much cheaper lab where I'll be covered. You know, that's a different role than we're comfortable with. And interestingly, doctors don't seem to mind when patients say, please do it this way. I just wrote a yeah. book called Age Proof with a doctor named Mike Roizen from the Cleveland Clinic. And he is drinking your Kool-Aid, by the way. <laughs> but he also said, you know, we don't want to lose patients. 
you tell us what you need and we will try to work with you, but you have to tell us. And, and so many of us, I think, come from an upbringing where you just don't challenge the doctor. You never challenge the doctor. Well, see, my dad was a doctor, so I challenged, <laughs> I challenged a doctor a lot. But I think you're right that, um, doctors are mostly willing to go along. It does create a little extra work for them because their computer may be programmed to send that lab to, to a hospital. So they may have to fill out another form. But you know what? I think most physicians I know of and the caring physicians, they don't like this system either. They want to do what's right for their patients. And if they know, you know, you're paying out of pocket for this, they're going to work with you to send to, to, to minimize that cost. I mean, I had this one incredibly emotional conversation while I was researching the book with a, a surgeon from northern Wisconsin, you know, good, good red state area of, of the state, who said to me, you know, uh, he thought he was helping a patient by taking out his appendix and saving his life. And then the patient came to him like three weeks later and said, Doc, do you know, the hospital billed me $30,000. And and the, Dr. Recksteiner said to me, so I thought I was helping this guy, and then I realized I was bankrupting him too. You know, doctors don't like that. They want to work for you, with you, and frequently, frankly, they don't know what these things cost. They don't know the price implications. So what I hear from younger doctors is we want to be taught this in medical school. When we have an order sheet with lots of boxes to check off, we want a little price next to each box so we can be attuned to these issues. Now, I would say the business people may not want to put those that prices would, next I would to the boxes because... Not as many tests would be ordered. That gets into, and my head <laughs> is spinning, but that gets, it just gets into the whole idea of having to order the test to pay for the machine that you've already purchased that's in your lab. It, it's an American sickness. We're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, author of this wonderful new book, but I just want to take a minute to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments, and Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives which these days means taking charge of our health care. One of the things that has become apparent in trying to read the tea leaves about what is coming next from this administration is that health savings accounts, consumer-driven health care, where you are going to be responsible for managing your bills and for deciding what you're going to pay for until you hit that deductible, and that deductible is going to be a big one. Those are not going away, and not only that, they are going to become more prevalent as the years pass by. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Elizabeth Rosenthal. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times. And for many, many people, some point along the way, that includes dealing with an illness of their own or an illness of a family member. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. So if we've got an HSA, and I, I assume you agree with me, these are not going away. Oh, I think they're here to stay. They're so growing. How do we as consumers deal with this new paradigm, with the fact that just like retirement has been taken off the shoulders of our employers and put on our shoulders and we've got to fund it and manage it, we're going to do the same in a in a bigger, more complicated way with our health 
decisions in our healthcare spending. How do we learn to be smarter about this? Well, I think it's a long learning process, but you can start tomorrow, right? You can start by asking your doctor to send your your blood work to in-network labs. You can uh, start by, if your doctor says, you should have a knee x-ray, like the normal thing was, oh, yeah, I'll go, I'll go get it, and saying, well, why? Will that change what we do for the next month? You can shop for insurance in a way, you know, you just have to be wise to the new games that are coming on in the sense of people tend to look for insurance and they look at the premium. Well, the premium isn't, you have to look at the whole package. You have to look at that deductible because I hear from so many people now who say, oh, I picked this policy. It was great. And then I went into the hospital and I realized there's a $10,000 deductible. So it's a whole package you have to think about. And part of the game, I think, is that we have to start thinking about healthcare as consumers. You know, we were all used to these insurance policies that paid pretty much everything. That's not the case anymore. You know, we're, we're faced with these high deductibles with health savings accounts. So, you know, I often say to people, oh, you know, I can't be a consumer. They'll say, I can't be a consumer of healthcare. And I say, like, well, imagine if you went to your supermarket and there was no price on anything, and you bought a bunch of stuff, and a month later you got a bill. You know, you would starve. No one would ever eat again if that was the situation. So I think we have to start asking to see the prices and to see the information because if we're going to be good consumers, we need the information to be consumers. And you know what? Right now, that's really hard. It's not easily available, although it's starting to be... If you know where to look, you can find it now. There are so a bunch where of, do you look? Well, there are a bunch of good online sites like Clear Health Costs, Fair Health, Pratter US, where you can get a sense. You put in your zip code and the procedure you need, and they'll give you a ballpark area of what's reasonable. If your doctor is charging twice as much as that, you go to them the way you would when you're shopping for a car and say, you know what, I see this other center is offering that MRI for half as much. We're shy about doing that in healthcare, but you know what? The providers know that the costs and their prices are hugely out of line with what insurers will pay normally. So you have to be bold and sadly bargain. Don't be afraid to bargain. You know, I have patients who come to me because my patients are the, the kind of leading edge bargainers who, <laughs> who get out of the hospital with a $25,000 bill and go into the business office and say, I'll give you seven in cash. We we, we call them New Yorkers. Right. <laughs> and it works, though. I mean, you know, most people get these bills and feel like, and especially if they have that, you know, 20% prompt payment discount, they think, oh, I better write the check. And and my answer is, don't write the check. You know, ask. Talk to them. See if you're getting good value. Do your research. Find out what Medicare would pay. That you can find out online, too. You know, in this wonderful world of online resources, you're not flying blind. Now, I look forward to a day as happens in France, where there are prices on the wall. Because you know what? Doctors' offices in France have price lists. If the place where I got my colonoscopy had to write on the wall somewhere $11,000, no one would ever go there, right? So they would never charge that much. A lot of the charges are because nobody's looking. Now we are looking. Likewise, in Australia, it's considered part of a patient's bill of rights, a 
to financial informed consent. You go into a hospital, you have a good sense of what you're 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 going to be expected to pay. I had one patient who was pregnant and paying out of pocket here, and she went in to ask for an estimate, and they said, oh, between $5,000 and 45000 So, you know, as consumers, we should say, uh-uh, you know. Right, that's... if the cable company said that to you, you would say, I'm going to Vios, right? right? So <laughs> I think you may write today not get the clearest answer you want, but the more of us start asking, the more the providers will have to respond. And I am just waiting for the first hospital in New York to put up a billboard that says, no surprise charges, clear upfront costs. And I'll go there because we have lots of great hospitals in New York. And I'm going to want, I'm going to choose one that delivers good care and also respects how this is impacting my family's income. Dr. Elizabeth Rosenthal, the book is An American Sickness. It's a fantastic read and really needed today. So thank you. Thank you. And I hope people will use the information they are to save themselves money on their health care because they can. That was an interesting conversation. I think Libby's going to have a big hit on her hands with this book. I do, too. And the way she organized it for me when I was going through it, like the topic itself is so dense and so intimidating, but she really does a great job simplifying it. Yeah. Yeah. No question. Kelly has joined me in the studio as you as you hear. How was your weekend? It was really nice. Finally, we have spring in New York City. Finally. I know. I hope it doesn't jumpstart us into summer. I would like to actually have some spring. Some spring. I know everyone. I know everyone is tired of talking about the weather, hearing about us talk about the weather, but it is really nice to have it here. Yeah. And I need time to do my spring cleaning. Ooh, me too. What's on the agenda? Well, last year, I think it was last year, maybe it was the year before, Elliot and I embarked on this project where every Sunday night and Wednesday night, which are the nights before the garbage goes out, we would go into the basement and find three things to throw away, three things to get rid of. And sometimes they were not throw-outable. We had to donate them. But mm-hmm. the the idea was we are getting rid of three things twice a week. And it was really successful, but we need to do it again. And cathartic. You like throwing things away too, right? I love throwing I things love away. I love throwing things away and shredding things. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Kelly sometimes comes to my house and she'll disappear into the basement and I'll, and I'll call down the stairs and I'll be like, what are you doing? And she's, I'm shredding. I'm shredding. You can hear the machine yeah. just whirring. If I don't need it, it's going to go. I know. You're I'm, really good at that. I, I just love it. Okay. All right. What Questions? do we have? <laughs> All right. Our first is an email from Sarah Jane. She writes, my husband and I are in our late 50s and prefer not to use credit cards generally. If we choose to, is there one you suggest? Are flight miles the best perks? Of course, we want the best APR. Please advise. So I know you're going to hate this answer, Sarah Jane, but it depends. And it depends on you. I, For me, Miles are the best perks because I use them for a specific purpose. I gather miles. I take a big trip once a year. That works out really well for me on a dollar-for-dollar basis. But if you're not going to accumulate enough miles to take a free trip, 
then miles don't make sense. You're much better off just getting cash back or some other perk. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to a website called Card Hub. I like their tools for finding the best cards for you. You can put in, you know, my credit rating is really good or it's excellent, and they'll direct you in the right place. As far as that APR goes, however... If you are at all concerned about the interest rate, generally, you're not going to be totally concerned with perks. And that's because the perks cards tend to have higher interest rates. So if what you want is a card with the lowest bottom of the barrel interest rate, just find that. And don't worry so much about the perks because anything that you pay in interest is going to cost you so much more than you would actually earn back in rewards. That's the number one thing that you should focus on. And Card Hub can help you with that, too. We often hear for millennials who are trying to establish their credit that they should aim for three lines. And maybe that's three credit cards or I know there's different forms of credit as well. If they're in their mid-50s, should they have a certain number of credit cards by this time of their life? No. No? No. I mean, you know, often you can get through life with two credit cards. Mm -hmm. One that gives you something back for charges that you're never going to uh, revolve, and one that has a low interest rate for charges that you are going to revolve. Okay. Good to know. Lindsay on Facebook, I'm 32 years old and doing well financially, no debt, about 90000 in retirement savings, and about five months in an emergency fund. I'm single, and for various reasons, including the scary statistics you talked about in previous podcasts, I'm thinking I should probably plan for my own financial future as a single person. I'm wondering what special financial issues single women face today. Okay, Thank you. Lindsay, I love this question. I love it because not only are people who are staying single longer finding themselves alone later in life, but people find themselves alone later in life for all sorts of reasons. Death, divorce. I mean, it's just singles are a very big growing cohort when it comes to the population of the United States and single women are a big chunk of those. So a couple of things I'd like you to pay attention to in addition to saving, and it sounds like you've really got a good handle on how much you should be saving. You're socking money away. I love that. I just want you to keep it going. Disability insurance is a big one because if something were to happen to you, if you don't have another person's income to fall back on, you're going to need an insurance policy to help fill in the blanks until you're able to get back to work. You also want to make sure that you've got health care proxies in place and a durable power of attorney in place so that if somebody else had to step in and take care of things for you, whether it's healthcare decisions or financial decisions, they would have the ability to do that. Lastly, as you get older and you are nowhere near here, long-term care insurance, because for the same reasons that disability insurance is important, If there's no one around to take care of you as you age, you're going to want to make sure that there's a pot of money there so that you can pay for your own care. And I think that's terrific. But thanks for asking the question. It's the first time we've gotten it, and I think it's a really important one. And finally, we have an email from Carrie. She writes, I love your podcast. I met with my financial advisor, and he recommended an ETF for new investments and my 401k rollover if I move to a different company. Are ETFs a good alternative to IRAs? What should I know about ETFs, risks, fees, etc.? 
Okay, Carrie. So let's just take a step back. IRAs are like four hundred one ks and、uh, SEP plans and Keo plans and Simples and their accounts. They're the holding pens for all of your investments. So essentially, we need to think of things like we have accounts and then we have investments to put in those accounts. ETFs, which stands for exchange traded funds, are like stocks and mutual funds and index funds. Those are investments that you might put into your IRA or into your 401k. Do I like them? I absolutely like them. They are low cost, like index funds. And as we've talked about many times on this show, the less money that you're paying in fees, the more money that is. Dripping down to your bottom line, and that's a good thing. What you're aiming for is to put together a diversified portfolio, stocks and bonds and cash, that is appropriate for your age and for your tolerance to risk. And you can use ETFs to do that, just as you can index funds. If you're not sure what should go in your diversified portfolio, then I like something called a target date retirement fund, which costs a little more but gives you the diversification that you need on an ongoing basis. And I hope that that's helpful. Thank you, Jean, and thank you for everyone for your questions. If you have some time, when you're submitting your questions on JeanChatsky.com, you'll also see a link to a survey we're doing right now to learn more about you and how we can better suit the show for you. That's right. So take a couple of seconds. It really won't take long. They、nope. gave us a choice between a fully blown out <laughs> survey and an abbreviated、yes. survey. And Kelly and I put our heads together. We thought we're going abbreviated.、Mm-hmm. So if you do have a couple of seconds, please fill it out. We really want to know what you think,、um, so that, as Kelly said, we can do a better job for you. And that's at JeanChatsky.com. Today's thrive is inspired by our earlier conversation with Libby Rosenthal, Elizabeth Rosenthal. I, you know, people who know her call her Libby, so I call her Libby. There are a number of new services today aimed at helping you lower your healthcare costs. Here are just a few to look into. Number one. If you're not doing this already, start comparison shopping for your prescriptions. A Consumer Reports poll showed only 17% of people actually do this. That is not enough, and having a standard copay doesn't let you off the hook because sometimes you get prescriptions for even less than that. A site called GoodRx.com can tell you what fair prices are for your prescriptions in your area. Number two. For even more savings when paying out of pocket for prescriptions, look at apps and services like Script Relief, which has an app called Search RX. Also, Blink Health. They've negotiated lower prices for drugs because they buy drugs in volume. Next up. Copatient. Copatient can help you negotiate your medical bills. It it actually audits them and sends you a report detailing how much you should have been charged instead of what you were charged. And again, this is a backward-looking service, so you can already have gotten those medical bills and then go ahead and deal with the folks at Copatient. You can attempt to get the money back yourself using the report that they generate, or you can ask them to do it for you. And they get thirty-five percent. Of whatever you save, but on average, 
customers save forty percent off their bills for an average of over three. Thousand dollars, which is a big savings. Okay, to recap, to find the best price for your prescriptions, use comparison sites like GoodRx. To save even more, check out discount sites, discount apps like Script Relief and Blink Health. And finally, to negotiate a hefty medical bill, look into a service like. Co-patient. Want to thank all of you for spending a little bit of time with me and with Kelly. I want to thank Libby Rosenthal. The book is An American Sickness. You should all pick that one up. It's really, really important information. Also, want to thank our sponsors at Fidelity. We appreciate you every time we come into the studio. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. And join us next week when Jill Schlesinger of CBS will be my guest. She's got a new podcast called Better Off. She'll be talking about that and all things financial. And we'll talk soon.